The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics, among other things. My latest books are Talking Back, Talking Black, Truths About America's Lingua Franca, and Words on the Move, Why English Can and Won't Sit Still, Like Literally. Anyway, I'm glad to be back after a brief hiatus, and although I have a lot of neat shows planned as we move on, this week I thought I would just revisit one of our general themes, because I want to just have a little fun, which is that language is always changing. And not just in terms of slang and terminology, but sounds and the very way that we put words together. And that this isn't only about Chaucer and Shakespeare and bygone matters, but the English that we know right now, the way we're hearing it, the way we're using it, over especially even just the past hundred years or so. One more time, I invite you to consider what would it have been like to experience American English in 1930, not 1830, but 1930. Imagine this as time travel. We go back in time and we deal with how different things were. Language wouldn't be the first thing that stuck out for us, or if it was, it would be that slang would be different. So let's say we come back from 1930, and one of the things that we would be telling people, we'd even have been emailing back from 1930, that people are using cute slang expressions. Wow, people are saying swell, and they really mean it. But if you knew somebody who had spent a week in 1930, then months and months later, after they were venturing by chance the 61st reminiscence about what 1930 had been like, they would start mentioning certain linguistic things that were just a little odd that they wouldn't have expected. And I want to give us three of those things that have often occurred to me. So we've already heard um, about how ours would have been different in many cases. That's a lot of what we think of as the old-timey accent. And so that was the podcast called Why Do People in Old Movies Talk Like That? And we know that we would have heard people saying things like air conditioner instead of air conditioner, crossword puzzle instead of crossword puzzle. You would eat French fries and you would order Chinese food. That was the word sex episode about compounds. But there's some more things. So one thing we would expect in 1930 is that the language would be more buttoned up. We expect pop culture, for example, back then to be more buttoned up. The Victorian era wasn't that long ago. And pop culture was more buttoned up, less profane, more anti-Macassar than it would become later. Now, films made before the production code that settled in in 1934 were really raunchy. And so Leonard Maltin, the esteemed film critic has said that a lot of what went on in those films would wouldn't be allowed in movies today for talking about early talkies in particular from 1927 to 1934 but you know there is some exaggeration in that the truth is that early talkies as wonderful as they were and as less cosseted as they could be than movies that came afterward until 1968, they're still products of their time. And so there's a lot more that isn't shown than is. And so, for example, nobody is shown having sex, nothing even close. Sex itself is not discussed. And more to the point, there's almost 
no profanity. We all know what a big deal it was when Clark Gable said in Gone with the Wind, Scarlet, frankly, I don't give a damn. That was a big deal. And the reason it was, was not just because of sound films. Nobody had said damn in the early talkies either. But there was a very interesting exception to that, where in 1930, we would know that we were in a different time. And that was because when it came to profanity, There was a sense that profanity was okay in, of all things, kiddie films, in cartoons. You would never expect it. I've said that today, discussed this in the very first podcast that I did in this series on profanity, that the words, frankly, embrace yourself. I'm using these for example. I'm not saying these things myself out of being upset. But damn shit, hell, and fuck, I've said, are not profanity. Really, they're salty because All of us, just about, of any educational level, use those particular words all the time as opposed to others that are genuinely profanity. But it would seem that 80 plus years ago, there was an extent to which people felt the same way. Because if you went to the movies and you saw a cartoon (laughs) before the film, you could catch some of the, shall I say, damnedest things. And so, for example, Bosco was the first Looney Tunes character. And there isn't much to be said for Bosco. In his first movie, he was supposed to be a Negro, so to speak, complete with the dialect. But they kind of let that go. And after a while, he was just cartoon characterists, 1930s. He was an early Mickey Mouse knockoff. Bosco almost never really did anything interesting. And I feel like I can say that because I'm a Looney Tunes fanatic. I've sat through most of Bosco's films. And really, he just kind of dances around and does everything three times. But there is one entry late in his tenure at what would become Warner Brothers cartoons, Bosco's Picture Show, 1933. And the idea is that he's playing the organ for a silent film. That was already a rather passe idea in 1933, but whatever. And he's playing, and really the point of the cartoon is to show the goings-on of what he's playing for. At one point, an old-fashioned villain comes along on the screen. The villain is being mean. And Bosco turns to us and says, listen to this. It's quite clear what he said, and they're not shy about it. He turns to us, and his mouth is drawn clearly, enunciating the F and the K. He actually says, dirty fuck. And that was considered to be an okay thing for this little drawn thingy to say. That's 1933. I've always loved that example. And it wasn't unique. Flip the Frog was another one of these rather faceless little Mickey imitations. And there's even more profanity in the Flip the Frog cartoons if you wade your way through them. Here's an example where Flip is asleep and his phone is trying to wake him up. These are the sorts of cartoons like the Fleischer cartoons where it seems inanimate objects are always coming alive. So the phone is ringing and trying to wake him up. So the phone rings once. And Flip is still asleep. It rings again. Still. Then the phone turns to us and says. Hear how that's very nicely articulated. That's exactly the tone that you would say damn in. That is a telephone talking to us in a goofy little eight minute cartoon (laughs) way back in the early 30s. Another example is at the end of one of them when Flip and a little boy are in a carriage that's being pulled by a horse and they're singing a song. Here's what the horse sings. And then he's chastised for cursing and gets smacked over the head. Whoa. 
What the heck? We can but still, you've got this hell sitting right there in the cartoon. So if you went back to 1930, one thing that would throw you is that while you were watching the little cartoony before the film, these little anthropomorphic whatevers would sometimes erupt with profanity, and that was considered quite ordinary. So profanity occupied maybe a slightly different place for people back then than it does to us, because Bugs Bunny doesn't say, fuck, the Powerpuff Girls do not talk about shit. It would be quite unthinkable today to have somebody in Frozen yell, damn. But Bosco can say the dirty fuck. So that is one interesting thing about time travel to 1930 and how American English would be slightly different. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Another example is how foreign terms were often pronounced. Languages from one time to another can differ in how accepting they are of foreign terms and what they do with them. So, for example, in Latin, you talk about case. And so you have nominative, genitive, dative. And so that's nominative is vanilla. Genitive is the possessive. And so something like the boy's book, dative is to, so to the boy. You have all these endings in Latin to indicate that. And they're called case endings, casus. Casus in Latin was from to fall. It was that which was fallen. So Russian took on that grammatical term, but instead of saying case, they thought about the fact that in Latin, the word came from the fall word and they called it padinya, which comes from Russian's word for to fall. And so case is, is fallingness. That was old Russian. Now, Peter the Great taught Russians to look to the West as much as to the East. And Russia has been more affected by Western ways since then, especially recently. And so today, if we're going to talk about F-U-C-K, there are Russians who have been heard to use a verb, and that's to mess something up, to fuck something up. That's not the way that would have been handled in Russia in 1750. American English used to be much less persnickety about what it did with foreign terms. Americans used to just take foreign terms and iron over them and make them sound more native in a way that we're less likely to do now. We are more open to linguistic diversity. We try harder to wrap our tongues around the sounds of other words. We don't always succeed, but we tend to at least make an effort. And that is because, despite obvious xenophobic currents in our society, there is definitely a value placed on diversity and otherness in American culture, maybe especially American educated culture, but still, that would have been unrecognizable to Americans in 1930. Now, we fail in cases like karaoke. It's karaoke in Japanese, but that's tough. Kara, okay, just doesn't fit into the American English mouth well. So karaoke is about as, as well as we're going to do. But back in the day, people didn't try as hard. So, for example, 
wonderful guacamole. To us, you know, guacamole is practically like ketchup. That was not true in 1941. And in Moon Over Miami, a wonderful old Betty Grable musical, basically nothing happens, but it's all in beautiful colors and it's in Miami and they're catchy songs. Listen to Charlotte Greenwood, who was a wonderful old character actress, talking to, sparking with Jack Haley, who is best known to us as the Tin Woodsman. He did do other movies. And they're beginning a kind of a romance. And the first time they flirt, Charlotte Greenwood has something to say about her guacamole sauce. Although, listen to the way she puts it. Well, you never had a hamburger till you've tasted one the way I cook it, with guacamole sauce. Guacamole sauce. Sounds kind of interesting. Guacamole. Okay. And no, it wasn't just a a misreading of the line or something quirky, because later in the movie, this sauce comes up again. And listen. No kidding. You really got a farewell present for me? I certainly have. I'll join you right after the wedding. In the meantime, here's a jar of guacamole sauce to remember me by. Oh, that's swell. That's wonderful. But I'd have remembered you anyway. Jack, what are you going to do for guacamole with me away? I don't know. I guess I'll have to get it someplace else. And if you could see it, you would notice that the sauce is red, which is not quite what we would expect. Obviously, this guacamole concept was new to most Americans at the time, so they didn't even have to make it the right color. But why not guacamole? You know, I'm not stumbling or finding myself out of breath to pronounce it that way, as opposed to guacamole. But, you know, guacamole doesn't feel as ordinarily American English as many terms do. And, well, guacamole, that feels strange. Let's at least make it rhyme. So if it's guaco, well, then how about mala instead of moly? So guacamole comes out naturally. And that's how it went. Now, Moon Over Miami was from the Fox studio. And the Fox studio actually had most of its flagship houses in small towns rather than cities. And so there was a general kind of small town proletarian feel to Fox movies. So you hear a lot of these things in their movies, especially the musicals. 1940, Tin Pan Alley, one of their more forgettable entries. But this is Betty Grable and Alice Faye. And they're singing about Hawaii, except... Hawaii, lovely Hawaii, it's like heaven on the blue Pacific shore. Hawaii, you hear that a lot in this era. We're so used to Hawaii. People from there will sometimes say Hawaii, getting in that glottal stop. Most of us can't be bothered with that, but at least Hawaii. Hawaii. Very common back then. You can hear it pronounced that way sometimes by people who have had the benefit of long, long years of life. And it makes a certain kind of sense. Hawaii feels strange to the American mouth. We're used to it, especially from saying Hawaii. But in general, we don't expect a word to be shaped that way. Whereas, you know, Jeremiah, Messiah, if you're inclined towards this kind of fruit, the papaya, that's easy to say. Hawaii, uh, Hawaii, that feels better. That feels more American English. And that's how it went then. Similarly, the capital. One thinks that it's Honolulu. But listen around if you're time traveling. And as often as not, you hear a different pronunciation because Honolulu is rather odd from the English perspective. So, for example, reading a Hawaiian broadsheet of 1918, we find the following charming report. Mildred Clemens, cousin of Mark Twain, is an attractive small person to whom Hawaii owes a debt for promotion work of a desirable sort. 
Her lecture in connection with a Chautauqua company touring the Pacific Northwest was everywhere praised, though Kamainas, Kamainas is, is locals, greatly deplored her persistent pronunciation of Honolulu as Honolula. Honolula. Have you ever heard that? Very common in the pop culture of the time. And it wasn't only spoken, because you can dig further. 1912, there was a publication called the Big Four Poultry Journal. There's one that would jump off the shelves if it were reprinted. Amazon, watch out. If you happen to, on a rainy day, be leafing through copies of the Big Four Poultry Journal, you can read something like this one. Mr. Martin recently shipped two pens of birds to Allahabad, India, and he has an order for a pen to be shipped to Honolulu, Hawaii. That is in writing. That's not about how anybody said anything. That's how they actually wrote it. Honolulu. That is an understandable Americanization of Honolulu, which is a bizarre sequence of syllables in terms of how our syllables tend to work. All sorts of things like this. And so ravioli was often raviola. I know people who are very old today who still say raviola. And it's because ravioli is a little odd. You can look at the Google Ngram viewer. That's another rainy day pleasure where you can see how, in writing at least, words have come and gone, what their frequency is with a very nice graph. And you can see on the Google Ngram viewer that raviola took a big dip after World War II and ravioli started climbing and it's victorious by the 70s. So I only remember ravioli, but you can hear older people saying raviola, which makes sense from the perspective of our tongues of a rather bizarre word that later we got used to partly because Americans became more familiar with wrapping their tongues around unfamiliar terms. One more, tomato. Now, tomato itself is already technically wrong. And that is because the word comes from the Spanish tomate. That was the original word. Now, you can imagine nobody speaking English wants to say tomate. That, that doesn't feel right. Well, how are you going to change it? Well, suppose the word potato happens to be around. So tomates and potatoes, you just want to make it tomatoes and potatoes. And that's what happens. So tomatoes already wrong, but it took a while to settle into tomato. So suppose instead of tomato for tomate, you decided to make it something like tomata. Just smooth it out. It's at least something that halfway rhymes. Tomata. You can find that in America written. So, for example, Delmonico's was a flagship restaurant, pioneering restaurant, originally in downtown Manhattan. You can read the menu and they've got all this fancy you know, pseudo French stuff. And tomato is a tomata. This is in writing. This is supposed to be very formal writing. People are going to Delmonico's wearing spats and breeches and bustles. This is not the hoi polloi. So you see on the menu, tenderloin, tenderloin with a dash in between the tender and the loin, like New York was spelled and also today. Tenderloin with sauce. And you get these four different kinds of sauces, all sounding vaguely disgusting. You have olive sauce. You have mushroom sauce. I guess that's not so bad. Madeira sauce and tomato sauce. There isn't a tomato on the menu. You could also have that with your beef dash steak. You could also have pickles with your steak. A different world. That's 1838. But still, you take my point. So 1930 is a time when American English was happy to flatten out foreign terms 
in a way that we're less likely to today. We have a higher standard. Chef Boyardee, for example, there are some products that I'm sure most of you are you know, eating up with a spoon all the time. But what in the world is a Boyardee? Well, it was created by somebody named Boyardee, an Italian named Boyardee. He called it Boyardee with those dashes to make it easier for Americans to pronounce. Imagine if today somebody named Boyardee opened a restaurant or canned some product. We wouldn't have trouble just calling him Mr. Boyardee. That was less true 80 plus years ago. And so it had to become Mr. Boyardee. And here we are today. That was 1928. And as you know, through basic math, that was only two years before the year that we're in, 1930. So you've got the cussing, you've got the American butchering of foreign terms, which was just considered ordinary. Let's go to Honolulu. And another thing that would have struck you about American English back then was that regional accents would have seemed stronger. It's often asked today whether regional accents are disappearing. And the answer is that no, they're not completely disappearing by any means. There are still local variations in the way people talk in America. You can learn that from a wonderful map that's gotten a lot of deserved play online by Rick Ashman. And there was that quiz that placed Americans within a square millimeter based on a few features of their language. And so, for example, if you say man instead of man, man, hand, Instead of man, hand, chances are you're from California. If you hear somebody say pink instead of pink, probably Texas. If somebody says water instead of water, then they're definitely from Philadelphia. Um, I know because that is one of the regionalisms that I've got. Not the war for were that a lot of you have written me about. I think that's just me being strange. But water, that's what I say when I'm unmonitored. And then Pittsburgh, etc. But we have to be taught about those things. And they're rather minor things. It is true that regional accents are not as colorful. They're not as distinct from one another as they used to be. Media has something to do with it. So does the fact that many, many more people get beyond eighth grade in education than they used to until more recently than it may seem. Urbanity has a lot to do with it. People go to cities. 1930 is the first year in the census that most Americans live in cities rather than in the country. And since then, so many people have mixed in cities that it ends up diluting local dialect peculiarities and creating new urban dialects. But still, that means that there isn't as much variation per se as there used to be. And you can actually see the decline of a local dialect in, for example, St. Louis's speech. Now, most of us who aren't from St. Louis wouldn't associate St. Louis with any particular kind of talking. But if you're a local, then you know that there's a peculiarity that stands out, which is that in many contexts, or becomes are. So instead of corn, carn. Instead of order, Arder. And then the big joke is instead of Highway 40, Highway Farty. And if you're not from St. Louis and you don't happen to know about this, I know this sounds bizarre, but I have had occasion to spend a great deal of time in St. Louis over the past 15 years, and I can guarantee you that that is definitely there. But it is, as the linguists say, age graded. And so the extent of that peculiarity narrows by the generation. For example, here is a clip from the wonderful 
sitcom The Many Loves of Dobie Gillis. The first season of Dobie Gillis is truly a joy forever. And I want to play a clip from it for a very local reason, which is that the guy who so memorably played the irritable father, Frank Phelan, was born in St. Louis in 1905. And you can tell because he has the grand old-fashioned Karn Arter farty accent. So here's one episode. Listen to the way he says for. Son, what is this used for? And warm. You're getting warm. Take another guess. You're getting warm. That is not just a peculiarity of Frank Phelan. It's St. Louis. And of course, they wouldn't have directed him to pronounce those particular little parts of words that way. It just comes out naturally. That is the grand old St. Louis accent. And I know people who are 80 and over today who grew up in St. Louis who sound like Frank Phelan. Phelan's born 1905. The people who I know now are the generation that Frank Phelan's people gave birth to. So that's that. The generation of people who came after that generation that I just referred to, they have the same trait, but to a lesser extent. And so, for example... Phyllis Smith, who's now famous for playing Phyllis on The Office and also for being the sad character's voice in Inside Out. Phyllis Smith is St. Louis, 1951. Now, if you watched The Office, and that was one of my favorite shows of all time, it was fun if you knew about the St. Louis accent to pick up how she would occasionally show some indication that she had grown up there in the way she pronounced a word. You would catch it once, look her up on Wikipedia, find out she grew up in St. Louis, and then you'd hear it now and then. But you had to work to hear it. She didn't sound like Frank Phelan. She didn't sound like Frank Phelan's children probably did. But it's just there. So listen to this clip, how she says normally. I mean, normally the rain would make me want to stay at home curled up with a good book. But everybody's being so nice to me today. I'm really happy being here. Or here, cock your ear a little closer and listen to how forward comes out. We have the best fans in the world, and the people are, um, I'm sure they're looking forward to this moment. Whenever Phyllis Smith happens to pronounce a passing word in that way, it reveals that she happens not to have grown up in Scranton, where the office was set. So that's the middle generation, you could call it, of the St. Louis accent. Now, there's actually somebody else. Same show, The Office, is how many of us got to know her. Ellie Kemper was born in St. Louis. She was born in St. Louis in 1980. So she's the generation after Phyllis Smith. Now, I'm sure that Ellie Kemper knows the St. Louis joke about how you always ask people what high school they went to to place them. She certainly knows the joke about Highway Farty, but she does not talk that way at all. She doesn't have that Frank Phelan trait. And you know it because on words that you know how Frank Phelan would pronounce, she doesn't pronounce them that way. So if there was a war, Frank Phelan would have said it was a war. If somebody was normal, normal, but not with Ellie Kemper. So listen to this clip from her marvelous current show, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. A joke lands every eight seconds. It's astonishing. But here's her talking, and you notice that it's not St. Louis at all. Do you think going through something like that, a war or whatever, makes you a better person or... Deep down, does it just make you bitter and angry? No! Rexit! Put it down! Drop it! I choked my roommate in my sleep this morning. And I didn't tell him this, but the other day I woke up in the shower cleaning a knife. What had I done with it? 
Do I ever get to be normal again? That sort of thing has gone on in many parts of the country. The old regional accents tend to be fading. Not always, but too often for it not to be an accident. That doesn't mean that Americans don't speak in different ways in different places. But in 1930, people would have seemed to speak more differently than they do now. It would have been very interesting. So, In 1930, what would strike us besides that nobody would make us eat broccoli because it didn't become popular in America until the late 30s, believe it or not, is that cartoon characters would be cussing all over the place. People would be going around casually butchering foreign words. And as we traveled the country, we would hear more vibrant local accents. It would be fun to spend a week, just a week, in that America as a tourist. If you ask me, of course, you would want to bring some penicillin. And, you know, after more than about a week, the cigarette smoke and the bigotry and the sexism would get a little old. But linguistic tourism, if they invented a time machine, that's what would interest me the most. Anyway, to close this out, this is a special little clip that they made at the Looney Tunes factory back in the 40s of Porky Pig. This was shown only to the people working there at an office party. But It's adorable because you get to hear a different side of Porky Pig to bring us full circle. Oh, son of a bitty, son of a bitty, son of a bitty, 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 gun. (laughs) You thought I was going to say son of a bitch, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) So tell us your thoughts about the show. You can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Mike Volo. I am John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. Welcome to me in St. Louis, Louis.